a quagmire. I don't yeah. play very good. I'm not very good. I don't play very good. Thank you, Abby. And it's good to be here uh, this morning, diving back into the book of James. Um, this has been a book that's pretty intense. If you have been with us the last few weeks here, James has been challenging us on money. He's been challenging us on our use of our tongue. He's been challenging us on a lot of different things. It's been a very straightforward exhortation to wholehearted devotion to Jesus. And uh, as we come towards the close of the book, we get uh, Pastor James at his pastoral best. Uh, after all of the very hard-hitting exhortations this week, we get James coming at us very gently uh, to exhort us to patience in the midst of suffering. And so we kind of come full circle in the letter here. If you have been following along with us from the beginning, uh, you know back in chapter 1, uh, verse 3, James called us to count it all joy when you uh, encounter trials of various times because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And so there is a start to the book very much James looking at uh, followers of Jesus scattered around the Greco-Roman world who were struggling in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering, and he wanted them to count it all joy because of the way God was growing and maturing them in their faith. And as we come around to chapter 5, uh, it's some of these same themes, patience in suffering, steadfastness are on James' heart as a pastor. And so he's had some hard things to say, some stern rebukes, some calls to faithfulness, but here at the end of the book, it's his pastor's heart that comes very much to the fore here in this call to patience and steadfastness. So uh, a couple questions maybe uh, for you to be thinking about as we dive into these final uh, verses in this final chapter of James' uh, letter. Uh, do you ever get impatient with the trials and suffering in your life. Do you ever get impatient? James has a word about patience for you this morning. Uh, do you ever grumble, whine, or complain about the frustration and futility of life in a fallen world? I, I, can, I could say yes to that. <laughs> i say, yeah, yeah, been there, been there, uh, done that. Do you ever wonder if God cares in the midst of the trials, the struggles, the grind of Everyday life. These are the kind of questions James wants to answer for us as the book comes to a close. He wants to give us an assurance that God cares, that He's with us, and that He's for us. And so uh, we're going to look here this morning at four calls to patience. The big theme of this uh, text is be patient, be steadfast. And he gives essentially three reasons for that and then one warning. Um, he's going to say, be, be patient. Jesus is coming. That's verse 7 and 8. He's going to say, don't grumble against each other. Jesus is the judge. That's verse 9. He's going to say, be patient and steadfast. You will be blessed. Uh, that's verse 10. And then verse 11, be steadfast because God is compassionate and merciful. So we're going to take each of those at a time. And I'm just hoping you feel uh, some of James' pastoral care for you, and that you would walk away 
uh, today with fresh encouragement to be patient, to be steadfast in the midst of whatever you're going through in life that you would feel pastored by uh, the apostle here as he uh, unpacks uh, uh, these encouragements for us. And so let me pray and uh, we'll dive right in. Father, I confess that I am certainly one that struggles with impatience. I look around at all the brokenness and uh, fallenness in the world and in culture and society and in my own heart. And uh, God, I I struggle with impatience. I want to see it all made new. Uh, Father, you tell us we're a new creation and uh, all of the change and work that you're going to do in our lives and our world. Uh, And yet my heart is so impatient to see it all happen uh, right now. And so I pray uh, for my heart for patience Pray for anyone else that can resonate with that uh, this morning, that you'd give us great patience in steadfastness in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the trials that we encounter, in the midst of the adversity, uh, just living in the grind that we live in so many times, that there would be uh, a great encouragement from James this morning, and that we'd walk away uh, very much encouraged uh, by your work. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start here with the first encouragement James has for us. This is James 5, um, 7 through 8. So you can just follow along. I'm going to be working right through this text top to bottom here. And so James 5, 7, uh, 5 verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late range. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so James wants us to set our hearts on Jesus' return. And while James doesn't unpack what he means by Jesus' return, this word return, the parousia, is a theme throughout the New Testament. It's about the coming, the arrival of Jesus in glory, in majesty, to judge the world and make all things new. And so when James says, hang in there, Jesus is coming, what he has in mind is this much broader sense of Jesus' return on the clouds with glory to judge the nations, uh, to banish all suffering and pain and sorrow and tears from our eyes, and to make everything new. All the frustration, all the futility rolled back, all the groaning that we feel because of creation, all of that at Jesus' return, at Jesus' coming. In secular Greek culture, this word, the parousia, was a word about arrival. It was about the arrival of a great and victorious king who would come parading into the town and sit on his throne and, uh, you know, mete out rewards to those that had served him well and judgment to those of his enemies that he had vanquished and defeated. This is a huge concept in the New Testament. And James is just giving us a little teaser here. Jesus is coming. Be patient. Wait for that great moment when the king arrives victorious on the clouds of heaven to make everything right in the world. And so James starts with this hope. And his readers, you know, scattered around a Greco-Roman world in which they were not supreme. They were not the ones that wore Victorious. They were a small, persecuted minority living out their faith in this really diverse 
a world in which they had been scattered, uh, various Roman provinces, various Greek provinces, in Asia, all over the world, different races, ethnicities, minorities, many of them from the lower classes of society, all needed this word that King Jesus is going to return all the injustice that they faced at the hands of the rich, which we heard about last week, uh, all of the injustice and pain and suffering and sorrows that they've walked through following Jesus, all of those things are going to be made right at Jesus' return. And so James starts with this call to essentially say, hang in there. Jesus is coming. He's going to make everything uh, new. And since we struggle, of course, with waiting, at least I do, if anybody can relate to that, and especially something as big as Jesus' return, James gives us a very concrete illustration. He's like, let me, let me give you a good illustration, good pastor that he is. Let me give you an illustration of what it looks like to wait for Jesus' return. And so he gives us this illustration, right, of the gardener. You know the farmer, right, how he plants his seed waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for that bountiful harvest uh, that's how it is with this thing. Right? If you've done anything, any of you farmers, any gar- anybody gardening out here this year? I know a couple folks are doing a little bit of gardening, right? You know how this works, right? You, you plant this little tiny seed in the ground, and it just sits there for weeks. You know, nothing, nothing to see. And you wonder, what is, is anything going to happen with this seed? Will it germinate? And then just this little tiny, you know, it gets into like June or something, a little tiny, you know, little, little sprout peeks up over the surface and you're like, wow, that's it? Like, that's all that's happening here? And then, you know, it keeps growing and growing and growing until you get to August and all of a sudden, right, the, the harvest is coming and you can see the corn is getting up to full height and you can enjoy that bountiful produce of West Michigan, like we're all doing right now and enjoying it. James is saying it's like that with the coming of Jesus. It's like that in our spiritual lives. This little spiritual seed is sown in hearts and minds all over the world, and and that seed grows, but it doesn't grow instantaneously. You know, it's got to germinate. It's got to take root. Uh, It's got to be watered. It's got to be fertilized. Uh, with all of the thing, all the stuff of life, often the suffering of life, right? And that seed for it to grow and mature and come to its full harvest. And Jesus, uh, the great farmer, as it were, is waiting till his great global harvest comes to fulfillment. Peter tells us in his letter that God's not slow in, in, in his work. Uh, he's, he's waiting. He wants all people to come to repentance. And so he's got this great global harvest all over the world, and he's waiting for it to come to full fruition. And then he's going to return and collect on this great spiritual harvest. And that's how it is in our lives. And so James is calling us to patience, uh, like the farmer waiting for that great harvest that is in store for us. And James calls us based on this reality, Jesus' return, his coming at the great harvest at the end of the age. He calls us in verse 8 to establish our hearts. He says, be patient, therefore, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so if you've been following along with our series, you know that we've been talking about wholehearted devotion to Jesus, right? James is after nothing less than our hearts, right? He wants us to be wholeheartedly, our whole inner selves, our spirit, mind, you know, our emotions, our will, all in for Jesus. 
And here James is just cueing us in, right? As you think about the coming of the Lord, you think about the renewal and restoration of all things. Be patient. Establish your hearts in these things. Set your heart, set your hope on Jesus' return to make everything new. James knows that unless our hearts are set on Jesus' return, we're going to end up disillusioned with this broken and fallen world. As we set our hopes and our affections on the things of this world, um, we're going to be brokenhearted. As we look to our jobs, as we look to our relationships, as we look to our, our homes, as we look to our recreation, as we look to our vacations, as we look to all of these wonderful things to fulfill that's uh, right, we're not going to be satisfied. There's this, there are deep longings in our heart that nothing in this world can satisfy. Only Jesus' return will solve the ultimate ache that runs through our hearts. Uh, no one captured this better than C.S. Lewis. Uh, he said uh, these words in Mere Christianity. I thought it'd be uh, super helpful to share. As you're thinking about uh, this this call that James has to set our hearts right on Jesus' coming. He said, most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promises. The longings which arise us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some project that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There is something we grasp at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean, right? The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and the scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us, right? You know what I'm talking about. I just did a wedding yesterday for Kayla and Chance, and it was beautiful. The bride was beaming in all of her beauty and splendor. It was an incredible celebration, and they're going to go off on an incredible honeymoon, but, you know, they also have to come back down to earth too, right? They're living in a fallen, broken world, and they got to clean up dirty laundry, and they're going to be washing dishes and all of those things, right? We, 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 we set off on these adventures. We're like, ah, oh, this, finally, this is going to satisfy us. This is going to cure the ache that's in our heart. And James is saying, look, I love you people. I love you Jews scattered all over the Greco-Roman world, but, but don't set your heart on the things of this broken and fallen world. Set your heart on Jesus' return and the restoration of all things. Um, he's saying, man, James is, or Lewis here is saying, as long as we're not going to be satisfied, or right? as long as we're setting our hearts on things that, that don't satisfy, but if our hearts are set on Jesus' coming, Uh, to make all things new, we're going to be able to patiently weather the storms of life. We're going to be able to handle the ups and downs, right? If we're putting all of our hope and all of our value in things that are temporal, right, they're they're going to fail us, right? But, But if our hearts are set on Jesus' return, right, we can handle it, right? If the job doesn't quite provide all the satisfaction that we thought, if the relationship that we get into doesn't meet all of our needs and be all of our satisfy all of our deepest desires. If the vacation wasn't 
that incredible rest that maybe you were longing for and desiring and you got back and the work has piled up, uh, right? This hope of Jesus' return, right? It stabilizes us in the midst of a world full of suffering and full of frustration that we find, uh, even in the best of relationships, even the best of jobs, even the best of things that we find. Of course, the problem is in life, right, that we aren't patient in the midst of suffering and steadfast, right? We don't set our hearts on Jesus' return, and we get impatient, and James tells us that we start to grumble. And so he has a warning for us in the midst of all of the encouragement. Um, He puts one warning in there for us in verse 9. He says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. James knows that suffering can bring out the best in us and the worst in us, right? Suffering, as he tells in chapter 1, can produce steadfastness, and steadfastness can finish its work that we perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Suffering can make something of us, can build courage, it can produce steadfastness, true greatness, right? To walk through the midst of suffering uh, and walk out the other side refined, sanctified, glorified, uh, but, but suffering can also make us grumble, right? It can make us complain. It can make us whine about the people around us, our circumstances, and ultimately against God himself. James knows that in our suffering and our despair, we sometimes, without even thinking about it, take out our suffering and sometimes on the, per- on the people closest to us, right? Anybody, anybody been there and walked through that? Our frustrations often come out sideways to our spouse, our friends, our kids, our roommate, maybe our dog, you know, if you have pets. We we find ourselves in the midst of those frustrating moments, right? Uh, That complaining, that grumbling just comes out of us. And we might be tempted to dismiss grumbling as one of those little sins, you know, grumbling. Everybody grumbles a little bit. Everybody complains a little bit. Everybody whines a little bit, right? But James won't let us off the hook, right? Grumbling against our brothers and sisters is a form of judgment and condemnation, right? It stems from a jaundiced outlook on life, on the people around us, and ultimately on God's good care for us as a heavenly father. When we grumble and complain, right, we are turning this judgment on other people. You shouldn't have behaved that way. You shouldn't have done this to me. You shouldn't have put me in these circumstances. You shouldn't have put me in this place. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves grumbling. And that grumbling, James says, is an expression of judgment, right? He's saying, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged, right? He's saying, wait wait a minute, you start judging other people, right? That same judgment is going to come back on you. When God, the judge, whose return is imminent, he could come At any moment, do you think you're going to escape the judgment if you're grumbling against others, judging them, condemning them for their behavior? Do you think you're going to escape the judge's judgment? Grumbling is a very, very toxic thing, toxic to relationships, toxic to community, toxic to the life of the church. If you've ever been around a person that grumbles, complains, and whines all the time in the workplace, you know how painful that is to be around that kind of uh, person. So who are you most tempted to grumble against or judge? Where does that 
grumbling express itself, right? Our sensitivity in these areas are often very revealing. This grumbling or judgmentalism is often coming from a place of envy, insecurity, jealousy, self-pity. We, we struggle. We have things that we want. We have desires that we would like to be fulfilled. And when they are not fulfilled, right, we grumble, right? Because we're frustrated that, that another person is withholding those things from us or God is withholding those things from us. Or it can also, on the other side, come from a place of self-righteousness, pride, superiority, and you grumble against all those pathetic people that can't keep up with you, that can't do the same work you're doing, that can't keep up with the workload and with the job and the responsibilities, right? And we all of a sudden become uh, the condemner of the brother, and we grumble against one another. Uh, Follow your grumbling far enough, and you will find your idols, your counterfeit gods, what you are really living for, right? Your grumbling reveals what you're living for. Are you grumbling about the fact that you just can't get a nice, comfortable day off? It's like comfort, maybe. Are you grumbling that you're not getting the recognition and affirmation you deserve from your boss, right? You're looking for affirmation for uh, someone to really approve of you, right? What does what your grumbling tell you? Are you you grumbling that you don't have the position to make the change that you want to do? Maybe, maybe power is in it for you. Trace your grumbling far enough, right? You're going to uncover some of the idols of your heart. And in case you're still tempted to dismiss grumbling as a small thing, I want to give you one last illustration, uh, once again from C.S. Lewis. It's a C.S. Lewis Sunday here, um, so as often is the case uh, with Mike Bartlett preaching. Uh, but he says this, And I just, it's, it's so good, I had, to, I had to tie it in here. Hell begins with a grumbling mood. Always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. I don't know about you, but that is pretty terrifying to me. I mean, you know, we're, we see depictions of hell, you know, with little demons running around with pitchforks and flames and fire, but, but this is more terrifying to me. Just the grumble, like going on forever, that part of myself being the only part that goes on forever, rather than being conformed more and more to the image of Jesus and joining him in his return and the restoration and renewal of all things and all tears wiped away, all the sorrow and suffering gone, to be in the presence of Jesus forever, to be just there going on with his grumble, going on forever and ever like a machine. That, that's terrifying. And so I hope this is a wake-up call for us when we think about the grumbling in our lives and you think, oh, this is not that big of a deal, grumbling, whining, complaining. Go, no, this is the first fruits of hell in my life and I've got to fight it with all I'm worth. I've got to exercise patience and steadfastness in waiting for Jesus' return. And so James calls us here to hang in there. Jesus is coming. He solemnly warns us not to grumble And he closes with two more examples of patience and steadfastness in suffering. So two more, more quickly, uh, but hopefully will help bring this home as James wants to encourage us in the midst of suffering 
in the midst of the struggles of life in a fallen world. Two more encouragements for patience, steadfastness, two more reasons to hang in there. First, James calls our attention to the blessedness of the prophets who suffered for speaking God's word. So look at verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider them blessed who remained steadfast. So once again, we're getting called to patience, right? Uh, And the prophets are our number one illustration here, right? God often gave the prophets an unpopular message to deliver to the people, and they were often persecuted for it. Uh, Thinking of like Jeremiah, for instance, who was beaten, thrown in stocks, thrown in a well, and in other ways, mistreated terribly throughout his career for just trying to tell the truth to God's people about their condition. Um, And James's encouragement has been, we look at these guys, we go, man, these are heroes, guys who stood up under persecution, suffering, uh, told the truth to God's people when it wasn't popular, when they didn't want to hear it. Like, and we look back at those people and go, wow, those were the heroes. Those were the ones that stood up in the midst of suffering and adversity. And, and if you think about it, most of the great stories that we read are about suffering. People that held up under adversity or under suffering. You think of the great civil rights leaders who like, you know, took you know, you know, nonviolent you know, uh, approaches to the kind of persecution and racism that were against them. And we think, wow, heroes like Martin Luther King Jr., we look at people that you know, went through extreme suffering, someone like Gandhi. We look at like Nelson Mandela, who spent years in prison. Right? Those are all the stuff of legends. Right? These are the stuff of heroes uh, that we look at in our own culture. And we think, and James is like, look, look at all the heroes. Look at those inspiring people that walked through suffering, persecution, sorrow, became steadfast and served God in their time and season. Uh, the irony, of course, being, I think, I think as we're thinking about this, that that's inspiring. We love those stories, don't we? We love to watch those movies, read those books. But when we find ourselves in the story, we're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I, I love reading about this from a very safe distance, and I can just shut the book when it gets too uncomfortable and go back to my comfortable West Michigan kind of life. But James is saying, man, we're part of God's story. We're being wrapped up in it. We've got an opportunity to be faithful in our season. We've got an opportunity to be patient and steadfast. Don't miss out on what God wants to teach you through suffering, which is back to the theme in James 1. And then finally, James calls our attention to God's compassion and mercy for Job in the midst of his legendary suffering. So finally, verse 11 Here, um, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Gosh, it's a message we need to hear so much in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our heartache, in the midst of the trials of life. The thing that we are most tempted to believe as we walk through seasons of suffering and trial, that God has abandoned us. He's not present. He doesn't care about us. He's distant. He's far off. And so James points us to Job, the classic illustration of suffering in the Old Testament. And not suffering for his sin. He didn't do a bunch of stupid things and then have to kind of deal with the consequences like we all do. This is a man that suffered because God wanted to display his glory through him. 
And so you know the story. Satan said, hey, this man only follows you because you've hooked him up with every possible blessing under this earth. He's rich. He's got kids. He's got family. He has all the things. And so God's like, you could take it all, everything but his life. And Satan does exactly that. Takes everything from him, his health, takes away his children, takes away his prosperity, his reputation, down to his very health. Right here is a man that experienced suffering at its worst, right? But James wants us to see not only his suffering, but the compassionate and merciful purpose of God. Now, this word purpose is interesting. It's one of those Greek words, telos, which can mean two things. It can mean a purpose, like the, the end that God has. And we know this in English, the word end can work in two ways. It could be like the end of a story or the end that had, the end that the person had in mind for the suffering. And commentators kind of debate a little bit about which one was it. Is, is James talking about God's end in that suffering, bringing Job into a deeper, closer relationship with Jesus? You know, James said, you know, I'd heard of you before, but now, like, I've experienced you more deeply and profoundly, and I repent in dust and ashes. Now I've seen you as you really were. Maybe that's God's purpose in the midst of suffering is to take us into an encounter with himself that we can't get, couldn't get any other way. But the other way this word telos is used is as the end of something. And there's a beautiful happy ending in the story of Job, isn't there? If you follow it, Job goes through all that suffering. God takes everything away from him. And then the end of the book, he's like, and I'm going to give it all back to him plus some. And so he has even more riches, even more kids, um, his health is returned, his reputation, and he becomes this incredible person. And so we're not entirely sure which one James is going at here. Is, is James talking about uh, what God's compassionate purpose in bringing Job through suffering to show more of himself? Or is he saying, look, Job suffered incredibly profoundly, but God had good purposes for him in his life. Both of those are true, right? For Christians, for believers, we know from James 1 that God uses pain and suffering to deepen us in our faith, to strengthen our lives, right? To bring us to that perfect place. But we know at Jesus' return, right, there's going to be a happy ending for the life of every Christian, uh, a happy ending that is a consolation to all of our hurt and pain and sorrow and suffering. Uh, we're going to see the compassion and mercy of our God poured out upon us. And so if you don't feel that right now, you don't feel how tender-hearted God is towards you, his mercy and compassion. James is saying, it's coming. Look at the life of Job. He went through incredible suffering. But God's merciful and compassionate purposes unfolded for him. God is tender-hearted towards his people. So if you're in a season of suffering right now, it feels like God is distant and it feels like God is absent, James wants to remind us that God is a tender-hearted father. He loves us. And if you can't feel it right now, God's purposes ultimately are for our good. Of course, I can't talk about the compassionate and merciful purposes of God for Job without thinking of a greater Job who gives us an even greater expression of God's heart. We know that there was an even greater sinless sufferer in the story of the scripture. We know that there's one who lost everything, not just simply his fortune and his family and his wealth, but one who lost even his life. We know that there's another who learned steadfastness to the uttermost. He suffered to the point of death, even death on a cross, to show us God's compassionate and merciful 
heart for us, right? In Jesus, even more clearly than Job, we see the compassionate and merciful heart of our heavenly uh, Father. We see God's love for us, that he wouldn't withhold his own son, but send him down into the midst of our brokenness and our suffering in our pain to show us that he gets it. He's experienced our brokenness and our pain and our sorrow, and he took it all to the cross ultimately so that that happy ending could be ours for each. Because his resurrection is the first fruits of that great harvest. When Jesus walked out of that tomb, his resurrection was the first fruits of that new age that was coming, that harvest that was coming for the whole world, that God would in fact make everything new. God is, in fact, putting everything in this broken and fallen world back together through Jesus. And he's starting with us, friends. Isn't that incredible good news? I don't think anyone says this better than Paul in Romans 8, 31 uh, through 39. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will we not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that. He was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall persecution or distress or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Right? That's the ultimate consolation for every Christian. And so how briefly... Do we keep this compassionate and merciful heart of God front and center in our everyday consciousness? How do we remind ourselves uh, that true blessedness comes as we hang in there in the midst of suffering? How do we remember that Jesus is the judge so we don't have to judge our brothers and sisters? Uh, How do we live in light of Jesus' return? Keeping these big truths front and center is actually pretty simple. Uh, It's shockingly simple, right? There are shockingly simple ways in which we remind ourselves of these great truths on which the entire entire faith is built on. Gathering together with our brothers and sisters here on Sunday morning to celebrate what Jesus has done, to sing about these truths, to, to celebrate a meal together, which reminds us of that great banquet and wedding feast that is coming, right? Gathering together life on life, Uh, together in deep and intimate discipleship relationships, like we're going to be doing this fall in our life transformation groups, it's, it's deceptively easy to remember, just walk with some other people through the truths of the gospel, rehearse them every day, to have rhythms in your own life. Uh, that are built in to remind you of the truths of the gospel, to start each day in scripture and prayer and close your day out, uh, giving your cares to God. There's very simple ways in which we, we walk with Jesus and remind ourselves of these truths. I want to close with one final encouragement along the way that I hope will just rivet 
this in your minds as we're thinking, and it's another C.S. Lewis, because it's a C.S. Lewis Sunday. So I want to I wrap things up here, and I hope this brings it all together uh, for you as we close. The Christian, says, Christ, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desire unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a copy or an echo or a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. Let's help each other fix our eyes on Jesus and press on to that true country together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for James and his heart for these Christians scattered all over the world, that they might have patience in the midst of suffering, that they might be steadfast in the midst of sorrows, and that they might set their hope on Jesus and his return. And as we uh, come together uh, this morning uh, to sit around the Lord's table, uh, I pray that we would have a fresh awareness of the Lord's compassion, of his tenderheartedness for us as we walk through this uh, veil of tears. Uh, would you give us great hope uh, and great perseverance as we press on towards uh, this great country ahead, our true home. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Mike.